0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins. Welcome to the program. This is Joseph Backholm, guest hosting for Tony Perkins today. Tony will be back in the seat tomorrow, but today it is I who have the privilege of spending the next hour with you. And we've got a great program for you. We're going to talk a little bit about the state of Georgia Georgia on my mind, and Georgia's on a lot of people's minds because of the implications for the Senate race, and we're going to talk to Dr. Victor Davis Hanson about that in just a moment, and we're also going to get to a tragedy in Mozambique. We uh, Here at the Family Research Council, we care about international religious freedom, and there are a lot of stories and things that happen internationally that we need to be in prayer about, and we cannot be unless we are aware of them. And we're going to bring you what is truly a sad story, but an important story that you need to know about out of Mozambique. Also, we are going to talk about what's going on in Massachusetts. What is the abortion industry trying to do there? Another story that uh, you won't necessarily want to know about, but you should know about. And then finally, uh, we're going to close the hour off today with a conversation about California. Our voters in California Finally ready to revolt, just maybe. We've got a little bit animal farm uh, going on in the state of California. Four legs good, two legs better, uh, with Governor Newsom out there not really liking the own, the rules that he has created for everybody else. And we're going to talk about what that means for the state of California. But first, uh, let's go down to Georgia. And to have this conversation with us, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for taking some time and joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we are glad to have you, and we are also glad to have seen the piece that you wrote for National Review today. And you lay out the stakes that are involved in Georgia, and we're going to get to that. But before we do, could you tell us, something unusual is happening right now. Why is it that we have come to have two runoff elections in Georgia at the same time. Isn't this supposed to not happen?
1: Yes, it it isn't. Well, we had an illness, so there was one um, law firm was appointed, and then uh, then compounded with this jungle primary, I guess that's a term where it's free-for-all, where anybody can join in. It's sort of guaranteed to make it very hard to have a 50% a majority, but it also coincided in the third phase as well with this election, which saw um, enormous amounts of money. I think the Democrats in the House, Senate and presidential races outspent the Republicans 2.5 to 1 and then millions of dollars in quasi gifts through massaging Twitter and Facebook and deplatforming and canceling news accounts. And then this mail in COVID, and you add that it was sort of a perfect storm that made this, this Georgia thing, not just who's going to control the Senate, but who's going to control the history of our country, a 233 year old electoral college or 161 year, uh, 51 year, excuse me, Supreme Court or 60 year, 50 state union i mean there's a lot of stuff up for grabs that if they get rid of the filibuster they'll be able to go straight through within margins in the senate and the house
0: and and that really is the question here and, and just to be clear that the, the jungle primary in georgia which basically requires someone to win the primary by 50 percent and if not then they have to have this runoff which is how we've gotten here and, and the seat that yeah. the kelly lother Currently occupies. Uh, she was appointed to that seat, and so um, that we're now having the election for that seat in a different time, in in, in the nearest election. But let's talk a little bit about what this means, because we know that um, right now it looks like the the Democrats uh, are are in the minority presently in the United States Senate, but. If they win both of these seats in Georgia, they could come to a 50-50 tie. And with a Biden-Harris administration, Kamala Harris would become the president of the Senate, and she would then be the tie-breaking vote. And we're concerned about what that might lead to. Tell us why we should be concerned. Well, the...
1: I think everybody has to realize that we have—there's a modus operandi that the Democrats are using now that they had used uh, very successfully in 2018 to flip the House. Remember then, the party was way to the left in their hatred of Donald Trump, but they ran candidates they said were either veterans or Chamber of Commerce approved or centrist. None of them turned out to be centrist, but that was the narrative, and they all got in, and then, of course— they impeached Donald Trump, and they went hard left. And now they're doing the same thing uh, as we're seeing with warnock off in Georgia. So they're both hard leftists, and they're going to pose as uh, sort of Bill Clinton, 1992 moderates. And then we know that the media is going to come in and declare through their pollsters that they're both way ahead to discourage the vote. And we're going to know that Twitter and Facebook will do what they did during the last two, midterm and general election, and then Tim, we're I'm going to get your ideas. You know, just just to finish very quickly, we're going to have people yeah. like Tom Friedman suggesting that Andrew Yang you move temporarily to Georgia, which is a felony, in order to vote, and then leave. So it's going to yeah. be a, and then mail and inv- it's going to be a wild, dangerous situation.
0: Yeah, on the on the issue of running to the center and then governing from the left. Do you think that the public uh, is is buying that? One of my interpretations of the most recent election, um, even if Biden is ultimately determined to have been the winner of this race, is that the... Public is not buying what the left is selling generally. We see that in state legislative houses. Uh, We see that, I think, already from what happened in Congress. The Democrats were expecting to make major gains in the House, and in fact, they have uh, what looks like a significant loss in the House. Do you think that it is going to continue to be effective in the future for uh, members of the Democratic Party to um, campaign as moderates, though they consistently uh, govern pretty far to the left?
1: Well, it shouldn't be. I think your points are well taken, but that's only one quiver and one arrow in their quiver because it's it's part of a larger modus operandi. So, yes, you, you can't completely lie to the electorate again and again and again and deceive them, but how does the electorate find out the truth? If the electorate finds out the truth through what? Television? Or they watch movies or they watch professional sports or they go on Twitter or Facebook or so, any social media or they watch network news or they watch cable news or they watch Fox. And they have so many levers of influence that when you read, uh, just to take that Warnock is a, you know, a moderate uh, man of the cloth and he's a, uh, a civil rights leader in the tradition of Martin Luther King. And I've read that, not that he was an advocate of casteism and pretty much said pretty racist things and also anti-Semitic, but you won't find that. If you Google his name, you'll have to go down to about five pages of searches to find anything negative. What I'm getting at is sort of an Orwellian world that these institutions, the university, the media, big tech, social media, entertainment, Hollywood, the Progressive Party have created that it, it makes it a, a, a strategy that otherwise would not be viable, it, it gets it, it is viable. And we, we did very well. We, the Republicans, did very well in this House election. But if you look at the individual races that we flipped, I'm speaking on California, where my congressman of two years that was defeated through vote harvesting, David Valadeo, was just nip and tuck. We only did it by the smallest of margins. And it should have been a, just a no brainer given what we saw in the streets this summer. And outright endorsement of not funding the police, you would think that all of these races would have been busted wide open. There were a few, you know, Susan Collins, Mitch McConnell, but it's amazing how close they are, and that's because of the the variety of influences that they have at their disposal and big money. We have to forget that the money in America today in the fortune 400 is not conservative. It's mostly left wing. If you go down name by name and see where that money goes to, whether it's social, you know, wall street or Silicon Valley or entertainment or media fortune.
0: I I think that point is, is well taken and well proven at this point that, uh, despite what the, uh, what the narrative has been about the respective parties over the last century it really seems to have flipped where the Democrats are now the party of the elites and the Republican Party, especially the Republican Party of Donald Trump, has become the party of the working class. Now, you in your article, again published today in National Review, and I would commend everyone to go uh, find that and read it, you paint a fairly disturbing picture of what could happen if the left had a monopoly control in Washington DC and walk us through that path of what what do you think yeah. is the worst case scenario for us?
1: Well I'm not an alarmist, but if they win the Senate, they have said they're going to end the Senate filibuster. So they would not need sixty votes. They would just need a deadlock and then uh vice president harris would vote and they would keep they have much more discipline than the republicans they they have in the past everybody knows that and so what would they do with that 51 vote power given the president would sign a bill and the house would also pass it the first thing they do is get rid of the electoral college you say you can't do that you have to do it by constitutional amendment but they have found a way by pressuring state legislatures to vote, that their electors shall be pledged to the national winner, not their particular state winner. And there are about 240 votes. They don't have to get all the states. They just have to get 270. So they're putting a lot of pressure on that. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that you have to have a nine-person Supreme Court. They can change it tomorrow if they want. they never done it because we knew in the first 80 years of existence, that was a terrible thing that it wasn't in the Constitution because the number varied and gyrated. But since 1869, it's been constant at 9 for obvious reasons. And when FDR tried to court pack, it sort of boomerang, but it also sent a message, you know, better you better become liberal I'm going to try to do this again. But they're going to do that, and they have the power to do it within 24 hours if they want to. I think they're also... It is true that the Constitution says the state legislature shall adjudicate voting for national elections, but it has a very important qualifier unless the U.S. Congress wishes to intervene, and they have. They have for the 18-year-old vote, women's suffrage, and there was a bill up last two years ago that was defeated that basically said mail-in voting, no idea required, early voting – mandatory uh agents. You'll see ex-felons will be eligible, 17-year-old vote. If that's passed and whether the state legislatures want to or not, they have to accept those guidelines from the Congress according to the Constitution. So they can do a lot of damage. We're not even talking to about how they're redefining on campuses and, you know, from the religious sphere, they're redefining the First Amendment, that people really can't uh, express themselves either intellectually or culturally or religiously because of uh, extraordinary powers that came in during this crisis, and they want to institutionalize that.
0: And that last part matters a lot, because if, if, in fact, you do end up successfully packing the court, the protections that we've had for the First Amendment, or we think we have on the Supreme Court, uh, would no longer be there. Very quickly, uh, a few seconds left here. Um, Most of us don't live in Georgia. What can we do about this if we don't, other than be scared?
1: I think we have to, each person according to their station, talk to friends, give money, send things, all within the law. That's the difference between the conservative and the radical left. The radical left will do it by any means necessary. We'll do it within channels that are legal. But give to those candidates. they are going to need their help.
0: Victor Davis Hansen, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute, thank you so much for joining us. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Leela Gilbert, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom, about what's going on in Mozambique. Stay with us.
2: Hey, Matt.
3: Hey, Hannah.
2: What's going on? Why so gloomy?
3: Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it.
2: Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do?
3: Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it.
2: Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard. But one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out.
3: When did they start? I I would be so far behind.
2: Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading.
3: Nice. Where can I find this?
2: Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started.
3: Where's that again?
2: frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview.
4: Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backel, sitting in for Tony Perkins today, who will be with us tomorrow here with you. And we are going to bring in Leela Gilbert, who is a senior fellow for International Religious Freedom here at the Family Research Council. And she brings us today a story, and she wrote this about this in Providence Magazine, which is an It's an important story, and I would commend you to it, Um, or it to you, rather. Because this is a most of us, you know, in our Western world, in our American lives, um, life is pretty good for most of us. And and we we quibble and quarrel and and sometimes complain about religious freedom and the threats to our freedom. Um, But we really do live in a in a privileged in the in the correct sense of that term, I think, environment when it comes to religious freedom. And because of that and because our news basically covers stuff that concerns us. We often don't hear about things uh, in the rest of the world that are actually really, really concerning. And I think we need to know about, it, not only to give us context, but also so that we can, uh, in a very biblical sense, bear one another's burdens and pray for those who are in much more difficult situations than we are. And Leela, thank you for taking some time to join us today and talk about this.
5: Well, oh, thank you, Joseph, for for inviting me. It's such a sad story, and it really does need to be told.
0: Yeah, please, then do tell the story a little bit. Give us a little background. Um, many people probably can't even identify where Mozambique is on a map, but tell us what happened there and, and why we should be concerned about it.
5: Yes, well, I had to look at a few facts for myself. I knew the name and I knew where it was, but I I didn't know much about Mozambique. But what happened was last week on the 10th of the month, uh, there was a massacre of 52 uh, Mozambique uh, people. And it looks like many of them were Christian. Uh, Nobody knows for sure, but they weren't just killed. They were uh, beheaded and their bodies were cut apart in a sort of ritual way. Um, It was it's so horrifying that it's really hard to believe that this could happen in today's world. But um, we're looking at the activities of another branch of ISIS, an African branch. And this is not an unusual story if you talk to people from Iraq and and those in the Syria region. So. Uh, Yeah, it's just so shocking and horrifying, and trying to put it in place with what, as you said, with our lives, whatever things go wrong, we're not faced with that kind of brutality.
0: This really is, to, to my mind at least, it's unimaginable that something like that could happen. What are the why did this happen? Is this, this is ISIS? You said, maybe they're Christians, maybe they weren't that that were killed in this way. Um, what are the, what are the theories about what the motivations for the killers were?
5: There is good reason to think that this was, uh, at a, a Christian village or adjacent to a Christian village. Uh, the theories are as usual, um, people, that are more secular and don't have any understanding of the religious nature of terrorism and particularly ISIS terrorism, which is very clear if you read what they say, but they, they say, well, these people, um, somebody just needs land and they're confiscating land and they have to kill people to make sure they uh, appear to have power. And so it's explained in a way that has nothing to do with the, Religious Islamist orientation of this group. And we know quite a bit about ISIS. And this group is clearly affiliated with the original ISIS and its directors. And so, you know, the difference is between saying, like in Nigeria, uh, it's climate change that's causing massacres, and now here, oh well, the people are poor and they need to, you know, confiscate property or whatever they can do to to get get ahead. So those are the two points of view.
0: Okay, and this is also something that you know th- this is obviously planned; it's premeditated, and this takes time to do. And I don't want to go into the grisly details of just how, a ma- how awful a massacre like this is and how what it takes to actually to execute this um, but how can this in, in my in, 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 taking people into the middle of a soccer field and cutting their heads off and then dismembering their bodies that takes time how is it set the yeah. scene for us what's going on in Africa that would allow this to take place over you know certainly minutes and hours potentially without any kind of Authority intervening to say, no, you can't do this. I mean, maybe this happens to one or two people, but 52 people is a lot of people, and that takes some time. How can this be allowed to happen?
5: Well, you're right, and not only is it shocking this time, but it happened in April with about 50 people being killed. And at that time, the report said that the police, I think they said like 30 police were killed as well not included in the intentional massacre just trying to defend people but the police in these areas are very very poorly equipped with you know they don't have the right kind of weaponry to deal with something like this they're poorly trained and they're terrified and in some places they tend to cooperate with the bad guys and we don't know that in this case but i know in nigeria that's been so that people have phoned and they've showed up three hours later so <clears throat> it's it's very primitive it's it's shocking yes and to imagine it going on and on it's just unbelievable but it appears to be and you know we as christians understand the bi- diabolical side to some of this. this isn't just angry people there's something very wicked going on here. And the area that this took place in is a part of Mozambique that more recently has learned that it has petroleum and it has rubies. And so it's a wealthy region of a very poor country. So one of the considerations is that, that ISIS wants to confiscate this area, and that may well be true. But is this wor- attacked. Have been very much on on Christians, and is this one area is, in
0: which the, the which the terrorists or the militia or whatever it is are simply better equipped than the authorities locally, who whose job it is to prevent stuff like this from happening?
5: Absolutely, yes, they are much better equipped and better trained. They have no training. I mean, this is this is a very a sophisticated group. ISIS is.
0: They are, and this is disturbing to hear because we had been encouraged by the fact that... uh ISIS in the Middle East, we had thought, had been defeated, and in many ways has, and we haven't heard from them in a long time, which is great. But it is concerning and disturbing to think that they might be uh, getting active in other parts of the world. But Leela Gilbert, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to bring this important story to us. Across the other side of the break, we're going to talk about what's going on in Massachusetts and the abortion industry. Stay tuned.
2: Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision... Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, planned parenthood america's largest abortion provider received 616.8 million in government funds family research council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions go to frc.org slash maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life that's frc.org slash pro
0: oh man
2: what's wrong
0: I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh,
2: that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I'd definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store.
0: Okay, that's Stand Firm.
2: Yep, Stand Firm.
0: How do you know all this?
2: Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story.
4: Huh?
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Earlier in the program, we talked about Georgia and why the left is so interested in winning those two Senate seats so that they can have a monopoly in Washington, D.C. And sometimes you can get a clue as to what the left would like to do in Washington, D.C. with a monopoly by looking at states where they have uh, monopoly or close to monopoly control to get a hint at what it is that they would like to do. And in order to have that conversation with us, we are going to bring in my good friend and the president of the Massachusetts Family Institute, Andrew Beckwith. Mr. Beckwith, thanks for joining us.
6: Joe, thanks for having me on. And you're right, it's it's not 100% a monopoly, but uh, the Massachusetts State Senate, for example, right now, it's 37 to 3, uh, so it gets pretty close to monopoly.
0: 37 to 3, and I wasn't even thinking monopoly as in everyone of the same party. I was thinking monopoly of control of all three branches, though I know that your governor is actually a Republican, which I want to get to in a, in a second. But um, 37 to 3, for those three in the, in the uh, Senate there in Massachusetts, that has to be a uh, lonely caucus meeting.
6: Yeah, no, it is. It is under a lot of pressure and uh, can be very frustrating, particularly on these issues where uh, you've got not only the uh, super majorities in both the House and the Senate, uh, you've got a governor that, that typically is uh, pro-abortion, although he has expressed some hesitancy uh, on this bill because it's so extreme and it's being rammed through as a budget amendment um, of all things.
0: Well, before we get to the the procedures and, and how this is being pushed through, tell us a little bit. I know that they are sure. calling it the Roe Act. You have a different right. term for us, for it. Um, give us a little background on what this is and what they're trying to do.
6: Sure. This is basically very similar legislation to what was passed uh, almost two years ago, back in January of 2019, which, of course, seems like ancient history at this point, pre-corona and all that, um, A similar bill passed in New York, and uh, you may remember that Planned Parenthood and the governor of New York lit up the, I think, the spire on the One World Trade Center, maybe the Empire State's Mm Building, both as pink uh, to celebrate the passage of this type of radical abortion expansion. Uh, And then a couple of weeks later, Governor Northam in Virginia uh, was trying to pass a similar bill. And he was sort of caught on the radio himself as a former pediatrician, so he knows what he's talking about, admitting that if the legislation passed, uh, you had a, a child born alive during an abortion procedure, which happens sometimes, um, that a conversation would ensue between the doctor and the mom about what to do next. Um, so what he's talking about is infanticide, but allowing that – born-alive child to, to simply die uh, after a conversation yeah. with the mom, between the mom and the doctor. And then the whole thing with the blackface and the hood and all that stuff uh, blew up, and, and that legislation was derailed. And it actually, I think, helped to derail or pause the legislation in Massachusetts for you know about a year and a half until they decided to bring it up now in the lame duck session.
0: So they're back at it, and, and it really, I think, yeah. that story reminds us, you know, it, with all the problems that the world is facing. You know, coronavirus, I'm sure the budget in Massachusetts is struggling like it is everywhere else. That This legislation would be a a priority, and it really does – it's just further evidence of how important abortion is to them. Now tell us – I mean I know, at least I suspect, uh, that Massachusetts already has some pretty favorable laws for the abortion industry. What primarily does this change? Why do they think this is worth making such a priority?
5: Well,
6: I mean, as some of its political posturing, uh, they're very mad about uh, Justice Ginsburg being effectively replaced by Justice Barrett. Um, but even if Roe v. Were, Roe v. Wade were to be overturned um, or something that affected the Supreme Court level, the laws in Massachusetts um, under our state Supreme Court and the statutory laws are still pretty favorable towards abortion. Um, you can have abortion for basically any reason up to 24 weeks, and after 24 weeks, uh, the doctor would just have to show that there would be substantial harm of grave risk to the mother's life or physical or mental health. And, of course, that mental health uh, clause basically covers almost any circumstance um, you can imagine, really, if it's if it's pushed. And I don't know if, any, if there have been any, any prosecutions criminally of, of violations of that that I'm aware of. Now, interestingly, what the proponent's like to talk about is they've added language to the bill that says you can have an, an abortion, a late-term abortion, 24 weeks or later, um, if there are lethal f- uh, fetal anomalies present. And they, they use that language a lot. Now, it's just a talking point that's been inserted into the legislation because that's already covered by the risk to mental health. Because, you know, as a former prosecutor – I can tell you there's, there's no way you're going to be able to convince a jury um, that, that if a mother gets up on the stand and is in tears uh, and a doctor confirms that, look, having to, to carry this child to term um, with these lethal fetal anomalies and would be dying a, a grievous, painful death shortly after birth wouldn't cause some kind of emotional harm or mental health harm. Um, so that's already covered. They just have that as a talking point.
0: Andrew, in in a couple seconds, tell us you have a Republican governor. What do you think he would do if this is passed by the House and the Senate?
6: He has said in the past that he doesn't like it because there's also um, it lowers the age of abortion that you can get without parental consent from 18 to 16, Um, and he's concerned about that. He thinks that we already have strong enough laws on the books uh, to promote abortion, even for himself, who's you know pro-abortion. So. He's spoken out against it tentatively, and
0: we're hoping that he will be telling. Andrew Beckwith, Massachusetts Family Institute, thank you so much for joining us. On the other side of the break, we're going to go to the other coast, California, and talk about what's happening there, and our voters finally fed up. Stay tuned.
7: Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled Three Ways to Read the Bible – This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There's no better time than now to get to know God through his word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out his meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com ways to read. That's frcblog.com ways to read.
3: When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, Critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash sexuality
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm is my name, and I am privileged to be sitting in for Tony Perkins, who will be back with you tomorrow. We have gone from Georgia to Mozambique, to Massachusetts. And now we come to the land of fruits and nuts. What can we learn about what's going on in California? We have some uh, new lockdown mandates. It sounds like we have a governor who doesn't seem to like his own lockdown mandates. And uh, we have a church who's trying to respond to all of this. To have this conversation, we're going to bring in A great guy, my good friend, the president of the California Family Council, Jonathan Keller. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today.
8: Joseph, great to be with you and all the Washington Watch listeners, even from crazy California.
0: Even from crazy California. And every day that God does not send an earthquake and send y'all into the Pacific Ocean, I think is a good day and evidence of God's mercy, and we are glad he has not yet.
8: Yeah, I amen. would like We're just to. to be Jonah, out here,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are, and 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 of course, I say that totally tongue in cheek, because there are so many good, faithful, wonderful people in the state of California. But you do struggle under some difficult uh, political leadership. Of course, uh, you are not the first people on earth to have that dilemma. And uh, scripture is, of course, uh, replete with examples of how to live in exactly that kind of a situation. But. To start this off, let's talk about uh, coronavirus mandates, lockdowns. Sounds like Governor Newsom has come up with some new requirements for you guys. Uh, What are those? What's he telling you you have to do now?
8: Well, so first off, California has been under this very weird and ever-changing, it seems, system of rules and lockdowns. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, we had one system that was more or less applying to the entire state. And then they came up with this very convoluted, color-coded system of yellow, orange, red, and oddly, the the worst color in the system is purple. Uh, And essentially, once that happened, a lot of people were very upset because a lot of counties, uh, like where I live, Fresno County – I know there's a lot of friends of FRC down in Orange County – great pastor Jack Hibbs down in the Inland Empire, many of those counties had been able to come out of lockdown and they had some flexibility. But earlier this year when Governor Newsom changed the system, it just so happened to throw a lot of these places back into lockdown. Well, after laboring under the system that we've been in for the last six months or so, finally many of those same counties were, again, turning the tide. We'd seen good things happen. And we were down to the fact where only – 13 of the state's 58 counties were still in the highest level of restriction, that purple category. And yet yesterday, Governor Newsom got up on video and announced to the state that things are going in the wrong direction, uh, to paraphrase him. And he was going to instantaneously uh, return 28 counties that had been able to make it out of the lockdown areas all back immediately to that purple tier so instantly we went from 13 counties to 41 counties. That's, Joseph, that's 41 of our 58 counties, but because they are the highest population, that represents 94% of the state is now in the highest, most restrictive level of lockdown in the state of California. And if if you're keeping track at home, folks, that's that's almost um, 36 million people that are now under those uh, incredibly draconian restrictions.
0: How are those uh, 36 million people responding to this? What's the mood in California?
8: Well, I can tell you, Joseph, it seems that a lot of people were very willing, I think like in most parts of the country, uh, people were willing to accept the restrictions, accept the lockdowns when they initially happened. I mean, even we saw President Trump during the beginning of March They asked for 15 days to slow the spread, and then it was 30 days to flatten the curve. I think a lot of people were willing to accept some level of lockdown, some level of restriction, because at the beginning of this pandemic, we did not know what we were dealing with. And yet we've seen now over the last eight months, um, it's true that a lot of people have died, and that is tragic. We, We mourn for those people and we pray for their families. But at the same time, we've also seen the death rate get dramatically lower. Our our great doctors and hospitals have learned a lot more about how to treat coronavirus. And as a result, even though it is still very contagious, it is not nearly as deadly as it was at the beginning of this pandemic, Uh, particularly if unlike um, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, if you don't send sick patients back into nursing homes, Um, if you take pretty basic common sense precautions, uh, this is something that can be manageable. And yet what we're seeing now is California tightening the screws and making things even more aggressively uh, restrictive. And at the same time, Joseph, this is where I think a lot of Californians are really beginning to um, become fed up is putting it mildly. Um, At the same time that our governor and our legislature dither uh, while cities uh, shut down and businesses are closed, were families losing their life savings, uh, their retirement, they, the the legacy to give to their children by losing their businesses and their their livelihoods. At the same time that happens, Governor Newsom himself just a few weeks ago attended a private birthday party for one of his top lobbyists. Uh, he went to a four-star restaurant in the San Francisco area, uh, actually up in Napa Valley wine country called The French Laundry. And we're talking about Joseph meals that are $250 to $500 per person. Governor Newsom went to that party with other members of his staff, with his wife, and only after it came out, a whistleblower uh, revealed the fact that he had gone to this event, did he say, well, maybe that wasn't the best idea. You know, I guess I should do a better job of leading by example. But it makes you wonder, if that's what he got caught for, how many other of our – rulers in Sacramento or in Washington, D.C.? I mean, we've seen already Nancy Pelosi going and getting her, her hair done at a black market hair salon. But how many of our uh, betters in public office are secretly violating their own lockdown rules, and yet we're just never hearing about it?
0: Well, I think that's a great question. There, there is a bit of an animal farm to this for me, where the rules are different for the elites than they are for the regular people. But there's also a part of this for me that the I guess the the pragmatic part of me rather than just the, the purely cynical side that thinks the fact that they don't follow their own rules tells us what they really believe about the situation, because I believe that Governor Newsom, like any of us, if we really believe that we were putting ourselves or our friends in danger of death by virtue of attending a birthday party or anything else, we would choose not to do so. And I actually think that we're much more likely to put ourselves in danger than other people. And we're constantly told these lockdowns are necessary to keep other people safe. And if we really believed that our attendance at a birthday party was likely to kill somebody, none of us would go to a birthday party. So do you think that whether it's Nancy Pelosi or whether it's Governor Newsom, their unwillingness to abide by the rules that they're telling the public to abide by is evidence that they're not actually as concerned as they say they are when they're issuing lockdowns?
8: Well, I think that's absolutely the case. And and Joseph, I'll give you another example. It's not just the highest profile members of the ruling class. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, obviously, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, incredibly powerful position, Governor Newsom. Uh, Governor of California. Incredibly powerful position. But in California, just yesterday, uh, it came out that there is a lobbyist retreat, what they call a junket, where you have these wealthy and well-connected special interests that pay uh, hundreds or even tens of thousands of dollars to put together these events for lobbyists, put together these events where they can come and mingle with our elected officials Uh, It's well known, and you know, in a normal time, I I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. You get a chance to lobby on behalf of your particular issue. I know, Joseph, you and I have been to those types of events in the past where we're talking about faith, family, and freedom. But in this case, many of the events that you and I would normally attend have been canceled. You know, uh, in in the case of FRC, you guys did an amazing job with the virtual event of Values Voter Summit, but. As a result of the restrictions in Washington, D.C., Tony and your team decided they weren't going to host a in-person gathering this year in the District of Columbia. Well, apparently that's not what California lobbyists and legislators have decided. There is a, a junket going on right now in the state of Hawaii on the island of Maui, and there are California legislators joined by legislators from around the country that hopped on a plane – or multiple planes in some cases, flew to Maui and are now mingling together in secret, you know, enjoying, I'm sure, some cocktails and some food, walks on the beach. And they are doing that while at the same time, literally the same week that this is happening, uh, the public health officer from California is telling Californians that we need to cancel Thanksgiving this year. You know, Jake Tapper from CNN is saying maybe we need to cancel Christmas.
0: Well, Jonathan, I think there's no doubt that that little junket that they're on in Maui is they, – they are figuring out how to save the world from global warming, no doubt, as well as relieve all <laughs> the coronavirus uh, poverty that it has brought on. So I, I think maybe we shouldn't be too cynical because I'm sure that they're saving the world from the beach in Maui, and we should all, frankly, be thankful to them for it. But
8: yes. let's uh, talk – Yes, I, li- I wish that things were that simple, so <laughs> – <laughs>
0: We we all do actually. I think I think that taxpayers are a little resentful when they hear about politicians being on these um, these. You know, vacation might not be the right word, but that's what it looks like to people who are just kind of working their nine to five and that they see that their elected officials are in, you know, Maui or in some other beautiful sunny place on on official capacity. Right. It does. It does look a little less like public service and a little more like I'm part of the ruling class. But I want to I want to talk right. a little bit about how the church the churches specifically are handling this, um, because we know John MacArthur got a lot of ink uh, because he had resisted the lockdowns months ago. Um, tell us a little how these how these new round of lockdowns are affecting the churches and how the churches are responding to them now.
8: Well, I think what we're going to see is especially with Thanksgiving coming, but even more so with Christmas coming. We're going to see a whole new phase of resistance from churches and people of faith, and I think it's really going to be kind of a, a little bit of an ultimatum, because at the beginning part of the pandemic, again, remember, Joseph, uh, especially in California, you can you can get away with hosting a church service outside in the spring. Uh, you know, in the summer, it can be pretty warm in some parts of the state. Here in central California, where I'm at, it can be you know, triple digits, but even so, I attended several church services this summer uh, with my family outside, sitting in the shade, either in the early morning or in the late evening, and that's doable. But these new restrictions, the purple tier that we've been talking about, uh, that is going to require for all of the counties that are within that purple tier, they are going to be required now to not host any indoor church services. And we say this as temperatures across the state and around the country are dropping, uh, as the rainy season is starting. And I think a lot of churches are really going to have to ask themselves, uh, at what point do we begin to say, you know, respectfully, uh, no, uh, I, I, we have paid attention. We have been gracious. We've been respectful and obedient, but at a certain point we have to ask ourselves, is it appropriate for us to allow the state to continue to restrict things? And let me, uh, Let me read you, Joseph. This is from Republican Assemblymember James Gallagher. who's a very strong Christian up in the Yuba City area. This is what he said online. He said, the governor and state bureaucrats can color code counties and change rules as they go, but the basics remain the same. We are all free people who can exercise our freedom responsibly. The government can only take what you let them. I don't think you should close your business, church, or school. I would encourage you to keep them open. I don't think you need to cancel Thanksgiving.
0: Well, I think that that is a sentiment that you will find more and more people adopting because there. I, I think your earlier point that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of understanding early in this that people want to cooperate. Nobody wants to put themselves uh, in in front of the interest of their community, and certainly nobody wants to be responsible for somebody else's death. But I think there's growing skepticism and concern about uh, the nature of this, how long this is intending to last, and whether the uh, whether the uh, cure is actually worse than the disease at this point. Now, Jonathan, uh, pivot here in the last couple of minutes that we have with you. Electorally, uh, one of the conversations, one of the results of the the election nationally is that the Republicans did a lot better in the House than a lot of people expected them to, be, to do, and that includes in California. Do, we, do you see any kind of tide turning? Republicans picked up several seats in California. Do you think that has anything to do with the lockdowns, Is the general political climate? Is that something that you expect to continue?
8: Well, you know, I think it will be interesting. Um, I, what I would say is it's probably a little too soon to tell. Um, The good news is, as you said, Joseph, that even though Joe Biden very handily won the state of California, uh, we did see elected Republicans up and down the ballot throughout the state do better than I think a lot of people expected. And the exciting thing for me in particular, going back to the Southern California, Orange County area, uh, California conservatives are going to be sending two pro-life Republican women, in fact, uh, two pro-life Republican Asian American women. To represent that region in Washington, D.C. And I really am excited because I think it helps to put a, a little bit of a different face on the Republican Party, at least from California. And I think if you see a lot of people in California, they have to choose between having someone like Nancy Pelosi be the face of California or a pro life woman like young Kim from Orange County represent the face of California. I think a lot of Christians would much rather see someone who is accomplished, uh, a great person, but is also pro-life, representing us in Congress.
0: Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. Thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Our prayers are with you in California. You are doing a great job in a tough place, and we are thankful to you and all those with you who are doing it. Thank you so much. That's what we've got for today's program. Remember, this stuff matters, whether it's Mozambique, Georgia, California, or Massachusetts. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com.